Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at this uh, section of Jesus' teaching from the Gospel of Matthew and examining the parables that he's telling in this chapter. Last Sunday we looked at uh, a parable that in a sense was an answer to the question, why does Jesus speak in parables? And today we look at a parable that's... uh, going to answer the question, well, why doesn't everything, in terms of the kingdom and in terms of Christ's reign, why doesn't it all come now? Uh, The disciples are anxious for that time. We just sang a hymn, Oh, Quickly Come. Well, they're, they're thinking the time has come. Okay, they're thinking that if Jesus is the Messiah, that The restoration of the Jewish kingdom is just around the corner. And any time, any time Jesus is going to, in an incredible display of power and glory, take over the kingdom and usher in a golden age. But as they're beginning to see already, that is not happening. That does not seem to be Jesus' agenda at all. And in fact, we've, we've noticed as we've come this far in the Gospel of Matthew, a growing polarization between Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, and the very religious leaders who should have been welcoming him. And that polarization, you remember in, in the previous chapters, has reached the point where now they want to kill him. He is not conforming to their expectations. He is not playing by their rules. He is upsetting the status quo. So already they're plotting his death. Well, the disciples are are, are perplexed by that, I think. In fact, they, they really won't understand until after his death and resurrection. Uh, throughout his ministry, they're, they're going to keep wondering why things are going this way. And maybe sometimes we wonder the same thing. Okay, we look at the world around us, we look at our lives, we look at the trials and the tribulations that people face, and we think, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he bring that golden age now? And so for both the disciples and us, Jesus is going to address that question and give us some important guidance as to how to live in this meantime. We're going to be looking at the what's called the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, Jesus tells the parable in those verses, and then we're going to skip down and pick up at verse 36, where he interprets the parable. So let's hear this word from God for us today. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came 
and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And now skipping down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears will let him hear. We've uh, noted a number of times that the heart of Jesus' preaching is simply that message that we read early on in the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is right here, right next to you. Well, since the kingdom of heaven in its reality is a, a spiritual reality, it's not immediately evident in concrete terms. Jesus uses parables repeatedly to, to impart to his followers a sense of what it means. What that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, means. What does it mean for God to rule, in other words? What does it mean for God to rule? And, in, and how, how do we... Prepare for that. Well, Jesus is giving uh, a parable here to respond to that, uh, that theme, one of many that he will give. So going back to uh, our text, verse 24, uh, remember a, a, a parable is, well, the, the, the verb behind that word is literally to throw something alongside. To throw alongside an abstract idea, something concrete, okay, to give you a, a visual image of something you can actually picture in your hand, something material, some action or so, some person, and to give you that alongside this idea, this abstract thought of the kingdom of heaven so that you can understand what the kingdom of heaven is. 
We are physical beings, and so God has to speak to us much of the time through metaphors using physical things, and so that's what he does here. Literally, the text says he parabled them a parable. He threw a parable in front of him. And again, as with the parable of the sower that we looked at before uh, from verses 3 through 9, Jesus uses the activity of sowing and harvesting, which would have been familiar uh, to these people. Although both parables talk about sowing and reaping, though, you'll notice that the imagery is, is different. Okay, the, the, the images in one don't necessarily convey the same meaning as they do in another. Okay, we, we didn't see, for instance, any bad seed in the first parable. Uh, we, we don't see different kinds of soil in this parable. Uh, so there, there are differences in the two parables, so, so you don't expect them to really say the same thing. They're saying different things. And, and here's a, a rule for you to keep in mind in reading and interpreting the parables. Treat each parable as a separate unit. Okay, now, that, now there will be parables that, that convey similar themes and, and, and perhaps even the same point, but, but approach each one as a unit in itself when you're interpreting them. Now, on its surface, even for non-farmers, uh, it's the easy to understand the story of the storyline of this parable. It's uh, agricultural sabotage, right? Now, in the ancient world, where wealth often depends on crops and on land, uh, we're not surprised to see human sinfulness manifest itself in trying to, trying not just to go, grow a good crop yourself, but to harm someone else's crop. And so that's what's happening in this story. Now, it may seem a little far-fetched to us in our day, but it, this is actually evidently a real problem. When the Emperor Justinian summarizes a legal code some centuries after this, a reference is made to this actual behavior. And so the situation is addressed where, where a seed that technically is called Darnell uh, would be sown in your enemy's field. And Darnell is, is an insidious thing to sow because when the wheat and the Darnell are starting to grow, they look very much alike. And as was implied by Jesus in his story, it's not until the grain begins to head out that you realize you got a problem. So that's the storyline. That's the, that's the uh, story that Jesus is telling. And the landowner in his story makes the wise decision. We're not going to try to pull up this, these weeds yet. Uh, since all the work is done by hand anyway, we're going to wait until the harvest time. And then I'll have my reapers take the weeds out first and burn them and then harvest the grain. Now, once again, if, if you've been told the meaning of this parable ever after that, it seems really obvious. <laughs> but if you hadn't been told that meaning before, this, this story would be pretty obscure. And we looked at why Jesus uses that with the crowds, but notice in our text, going down to verse 36 now, that when the disciples get him by himself, they say, we don't understand this either. <laughs> 
So it's not the case that well, the disciples automatically understand everything Jesus is teaching. And so they come to him and say, we don't have a clue what the point is. How is this story like the kingdom of heaven? We need you to explain it to us. We need you literally to, to make it clear to us. And here's, here's a lesson we can learn here too. The reason the disciples learn the meaning of this parable and the crowds don't is because the disciples come with humility and faith. And that's how you need to approach them too. The disciples believe that there is truth here to be found. They don't think Jesus is just telling this story just for entertainment. They believe there must be a truth here to be found out. And so they have faith. They have faith that he is, his words have meaning. And when you come to the scripture, God's word, come with faith. There is, there is truth here. There, there is great meaning. There is life-giving truth here. Come with faith. And come also with that other attribute they show of humility. Humility. The Bible does not reveal its truth to people who come to it as know-it-alls. Okay. There, there, there are those people, you, you know them, that always know everything about any subject you bring, about, you bring up. Okay. Don't come to Scripture with that attitude. Come with humility, ready to be taught. Okay, I've said before, I don't have any original thoughts about the Bible. Okay. Everything, everything that I say about the Bible, I learned from somebody else. You need to come with humility. So the disciples come with humility, they come with faith, they believe there's a meaning here that is important for them to grasp, and they want to get it. And if you come to God's word with faith and you really want to get it, you come in humility. It'll be there for you. It may take work. It may not be easy. It may take you some time and some meditation and some prayer. But, but God will speak to you through his word if you're a child of his. And so Jesus is very happy to unfold the story of this, uh, the meaning behind this parable, behind this story to them. Now, now he picks up on some details that he's going to identify for them that help them get the main point. A parable is really about one main point. Don't think of it as an allegory where you have to figure out what every Virtually everything in the story means, every object, every person, every action. It's not an allegory, okay, like Pilgrim's Progress or something like that. You're going to be looking for one main point, but Jesus gives us some details. He identifies some details so we can, he can make sure we get that main point. So he does that in the opening, beginning in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. We've seen that that's Jesus' favorite name for himself. He uses this name of himself more than any other name. And we've seen that that comes right out of Daniel. 
the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's the son of man. And, of course, the disciples are anxious to see that glorious kingdom on earth. But Jesus has a lot more to tell them. That's not really the main point of the parable. And so he goes on. The field is the world. So the field where the grain is sown is the world. And think not just in terms of space there, but in terms of time. As we'll see, this parable, in a sense, embraces all of human history. Okay, so when you read world there, think of all the world that has been, that is, that will be. Okay? The good seed is the children of the kingdom, the children of God. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. We see that association between Satan and sinners in Jesus' teaching other places. There's a in John chapter 8, there's a confrontation between Jesus and the religious rulers and, and their animosity, their hatred, their resentment of Jesus is growing stronger and stronger. And in that encounter in, in chapter 8, uh, they're, they're already seeking to kill him. And they're even slandering him. Okay, they're saying things that imply they think that his, his, his mother was pregnant with him through sexual immorality. Okay, so that they're using every dirty trick in the book that they can think of. And at the same time, they're saying, we're sons of Abraham. We're sons of God. And Jesus does not let that stand. He goes on to say, again, John chapter 8, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I am not come of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Pharisees have aligned themselves with the devil. And so in that sense, they are the sons of the devil. That's a Hebraic expression, by the way, that associates, associates people with a particular attribute, a way of thinking. So they're sons of the devil and that they're thinking like him. They are lying like him. They are seeking to murder like him. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 applies this terminology to all unbelievers. I'll read that passage right now, but you can go to that later if you want in 1 John chapter 3, where John says there's, there's only two groups of people. There are those who are aligned with Satan. There are those who are aligned with God. 
Now, Jesus goes on then to identify the harvest described by the landowner in the parable as an image for the end of human history. See that there in, in verse 40. The landowner's words concerning the harvest were the main point of that parable, you remember. That's the climax of the story. Okay, and that, that's helping us recognize the main theme as well. Now, Jesus gives the most attention in his interpretation to that imagery of the harvest as well. Jesus' primary lesson then, here's the main point. We, we've really got it already, don't we? There is a final judgment coming. There's a final judgment coming. And Jesus, coming as the Son of Man, is the one who will execute that. Now notice that Jesus says this, this judgment is really an identification of people. It's identifying those who belong to God's kingdom and those who do not. Those who have rebelled against God and his kingdom will be excluded from that kingdom. See the interpretation there where he talks about being gathered out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers there in verse 41. And so they're gathered out of his kingdom, out of his rule, out of his domain, and cast into hell. Teaching of hell is not a pleasant one for people, is it? It's not a doctrine we... We necessarily take joy in hearing. But as we begin to look at this topic of hell, I want you to notice that most of what we are taught about hell comes from the mouth of the one who is perfectly righteous, Jesus himself, the one who is more tender and compassionate and loving than any person who ever lived. Jesus is the one who gives us this doctrine primarily. He's already brought it up in the gospel. If we go back to Matthew chapter 8, he heals the, the servant of a centurion. And this Roman centurion, not even a Jew, has such faith in Jesus that he says, I, I don't want you to come to my house. I know that I'm a Gentile. I'm unclean. I, I don't want you as a Jew to contaminate yourself. By, in fact, you don't even have to come near my house. All you have to do is just say the word, and my servant back home will be healed. I know it. And, and, and Jesus marvels at that faith. And he says this, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel... That is, none of the Jews that he's seen have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west. Now, that's, that's a metaphor for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to come from across the globe, he says, and recline at table. They're going to sit down at the feast, okay, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that is the Jews, many of them, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth. I notice, by the way, the imagery of a kingdom feast there. 
that, that our observance of communion in a few moments is going to point to. And notice, notice Jesus' characterization of eternal punishment there as a place of complete and utter darkness, a place where sinners are weeping and grinding their teeth. Ironically, we see them, that is, unbelievers, doing the same thing, grinding their teeth when they rush at Stephen to lynch him. Remember Stephen preaching after Jesus' resurrection, and he's preaching Jesus. He's, he's preaching repentance. And they are so angry at his preaching that they gnash their teeth, they grind their teeth, and rush at him and stone him in a lynch mob. Hell is not a place of repentance. It's a place of anger, resentment, hatred towards God. Now, the descriptions of hell that he provides, both in, back in chapter 8 and here, we want to remember are metaphorical. Okay, he, he, is, he is taking things like utter darkness and fire and corruption on another occasion. He, he's, he's using those to describe hell, but you need to keep in mind that even though he's making comparisons with these concrete realities that we know, we know what darkness is, we know what fire is, we know what rotting and corruption is, the metaphors only point to reality that is far, far worse. Far, far worse. Hell is a place of torment and rage against God that is beyond description. But I also want you to notice, hell is not a cruel punishment. Now, a cruel punishment something that's not deserved. If somebody is cruel to you, they're doing something that you don't deserve. But there will not be one innocent person in hell. There will not be one person who does not deserve the punishment that they receive. God is not being cruel in hell. He is being just. And this leads us to note that Hell is not an escape from God, but rather to fully experience the wrath of God. Those in hell would wish that they could destroy God, or that they could destroy themselves. But they will not be able to do either one, but eternally suffer the wrath of God. They would, they would hate to be in heaven, to be honest. And they rage against God. They refuse to glorify him, refuse to submit to him, refuse to repent. So hell is the entirely just punishment for sinners and for those who are evil. No sin will go unpunished. But at the same time, notice the parable doesn't end there. And so his interpretation doesn't end there. There is an alternative destination for human beings. 
and that is glory. Look at verse 43 again. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Jesus is probably going back to the book of Daniel again and borrowing an image that, that Daniel is given of what it will be like for the, the kingdom of God to be fulfilled and for God's glory to be over all the earth. And so he is told at that time, that is the end of the age, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose names shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The children of God, the children of the kingdom, Jesus says, will shine like the sun. They will reflect, in other words, the glory of God. Reflect the glory of God. And notice, he says to his disciples, he has ears, let him hear. And that brings us really to, to think about the fact that with, with these alternatives in view, with eternal punishment or eternal glory in review, you can see that the judgment of God is the most important reality in human life. This is the question human beings have to answer. It's no wonder, then, is it, that Jesus' preaching is continually repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's because he knows these realities that he's touching here. It's, it's ironic that, that so many unbelievers are insulted if they're told to repent. That, that is actually the absolutely most loving thing that could be said to sinners like us, isn't it? It's a demonstration of God's love. It's out of love for sinners that Jesus continually says, repent. Every person who heard him preach that has died. And not one of them will be able to say when they stand before God, God didn't love me because they heard the message to repent loving message of God to sinners. In fact, every person who denies God's judgment and denies eternal punishment really hates himself and hates other people too because it is to keep them blind to a reality that they need to know. The early church preacher John Chrysostom encouraged his listeners to keep the reality of hell before their minds because those who deny hell's reality are the ones most likely to experience it. While to believe in the reality of eternal punishment is to be moved to cast yourself upon the mercy of God for salvation from it. Now what is more... Everybody knows when harvest is coming. Okay, we know when 
Harvest time is going to roll around, but nobody knows. Nobody knows when final judgment is coming. No one knows the end of human history. No one even knows when their own life will end. A person never knows what hour may be his last before facing God as judge, either after death or at Jesus coming again. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It might be the next hour. Now, if that's true, and Jesus has said it, so it's true, then that has significant implications for the way we live. One is, in a very practical sense, that final judgment means that God's judgment is not fully meted out now. Now, you see some punishment for sin. We see some people suffering consequences for the negative things they've done. So God's judgment is active in human history in that sense, but, but there's a lot of sin that people get away with, isn't there? And even when a sinner experiences the consequences of his sin, it is not the hell that that sin deserves. So we need to be careful not to expect God's perfect judgment to be implemented now. Jesus is answering that question of the disciples. Why aren't you, dis why aren't you instituting the kingdom now? And the shorthand answer is, so I can save people. God is delaying his judgment so that people can be rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. So don't expect perfect justice in human history. That, that's been an error that people made, even people who who call themselves Christians have made. They thought they could, they could create the perfect church, the perfect community, the perfect society. They thought they could eradicate evil. It's not possible. It's not possible. And in fact, those attempts to do that kind of thing and movements like communism uh, actually wind up with greater injustice. And they all fall short. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to seek justice in this present age. That's not what Jesus is implying here. As God's people, we should be in the forefront of those who work and call for justice. Every culture, every society, every human institution has some kind of values, has some kind of moral structure in and our role as Christians is to, is to promote a godly moral structure in our families, in our church, in our community, in our nation. We are to be the ones that stand for justice and truth forthrightly. So we're not to, not to give up seeking that just because we know that sinners will never be able to put it together. In short, we're to always live, but both in the way we live and in the morality, the justice that we call for, 
within the back of our minds, that final judgment coming. That is the judgment that we need to be concerned for. Not the judgment of other people. Not the judgment of the society around us. But rather the judgment of God. And let's remember too that that nobody is beyond the call to repentance. In the Old Testament, Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Encouraged and did horrible things, idolatry and all kinds of things. And we're told that he was taken in ca captive to Babylon, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He took down all the idols, and he called his people to worship the Lord, the true God. In the New Testament, we could think of the example of Paul, right? Who, before his conversion, is actually persecuting the church. He's, he's killing Christians. And yet he was, he was not beyond salvation, for God touched him and turned him around, brought him to repentance. So don't, don't fall for the lie of Satan that says you can go beyond the mercy of God. Now, there is, a, there is an unforgivable sin, Jesus says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, ascribing the things that the Spirit did through Jesus. He said, you're sinning against the Holy Spirit to the Pharisees. But in, in terms of, of human sin, the infinite price for that sin is paid by Jesus Christ. And, and so Saul didn't outrun the mercy of God by killing Christians. The death of Christ made atonement for those sins. The atonement of Jesus pays in full the sins of his people. You don't, have to, you don't have to add to the work of Christ to be a member of the kingdom. He, you don't have to somehow get purified after you die more so you can get into the kingdom. Jesus paid it all. And so this call to repentance that Jesus is issuing here is, it, it is a call to forgiveness and grace. And it's a call that we need to respond to every day, isn't it? As often as we sin, Jesus calls us to repentance. And notice that it's not just a call from sin. It's a call to glory. It's a call to glory. Final judgment at the end of the age, then, Jesus says, means that justice is going to be perfectly executed. 
All evil is punished, all good rewarded. For those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ alone, all their sin is judged in him. And they shine with his glory. This is why we preach the good news. This is why we preach it to ourselves. This is why we preach it to others. And we have the guarantee of Jesus' word that that will bring wonderful results. He will be pleased to bless you as you live a life of repentance and as you model that repentance before others and call others to repentance, Jesus will bless that. Perhaps in ways you're not even aware of, this side of heaven. And he will bring you into glory. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we're grateful for the bad news that comes with the good news. The bad news that we are sinners. It comes with the good news that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. May we be a people, Lord, who rush to repent. Who, as soon as our hearts are pricked, confess our sin. Find in you that forgiveness that we need. Give us faith, Lord, that you will preserve us to the end, that you will sustain us and, and enable us to live lives that, that glorify you and bring us into your eternal kingdom for your glory and the good of all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.